Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Welcome back to our wonderful listeners. So today on the podcast, we are going to be exploring the behavioral approach to insomnia. My guest today is Dr. Amanda Seavey. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to learn about this uh, topic because it's been kind of coming up in my conversations recently with clients about like not sleeping well, like not getting to bed till 5 a.m. And I'm like, ooh, I was like, okay, you're going to have to stay tuned because I'm doing a podcast on insomnia. Um, And, you know, there might be some really helpful uh, tips and tricks here. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting into this. But I figured let's start off with like some context. Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a licensed psychologist here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm in private practice. And while I'm a generalist and treat all kinds of things, depression, anxiety, trauma, one of my primary specialties has become insomnia. Um, Not a whole lot of people are, are doing treatment for insomnia, especially the behavioral treatments for insomnia. I treat other sleep disorders as well. And my practice has really taken on kind of a health psychology sort of leaning recently. And I I really, really love that work. Awesome. So you mentioned health psychology. Um, Could you maybe define what that means and what that looks like? Yeah. So the health psychology, you can consider basically how biology, psychology, uh, behavioral and behavioral and social factors kind of all affect our health and illness. So you can almost think of it like a bit of overlap between the the medical field and then um, psychology. Thank you. It kind of sounds like a you know. So one of the the models that we try to kind of. Um, use in, well, I use in my practice is the biopsychosocial model, right? So there's the biological process of the actual injury or the, you know, there's some underlying biological physiological cause to pain, but then there's the impacts of our thought process and, you know, maybe past traumas. Like there's that, you know, you can't separate mind from body, right? So we have to accept that there is a mental component to these things. And so we screen, you know, in my case, I screen and I help educate on how that plays a role in their pain. And then of course, refer out if there's specific treatments, but then there's the social aspect too. How were we raised to think about pain? You know, who in our environment might be, you know, enabling our pain to get worse or enabling our pain to get better. Um, So all of these factors can impact healing. So I imagine it's the same for sleep too. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Biopsychosocial model plays a huge role in how we think about these things and how we think about sleep. 
Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, just again, for, for people who may not sort of know, obviously we have, you know, the privilege of our education, you know, centered around these things, but, you know, let's talk about why sleep is so important. Yeah. So sleep is incredibly important. And anyone who has had a not so great night's sleep probably has felt that effect. Um, quite profoundly that next day. So, you know, we think about sleep as the time when the brain really um, restores itself and where the body restores itself. So we sort of encode um, memories. We, we think of it as a time when there's genitorial work done. So there's toxic waste that's, that's cleared out during sleep. Um, there's also sort of protein um, synthesis and uh, growth hormone is released during sleep. So we think about it as the body and mind kind of repairing itself and, and restoring energy. So that's, you know, some of what we think about as, you know, why we sleep and, and what we happen, what happens um, during sleep. It also affects, you know, what that looks like is it affects problem solving and creativity and emotion regulation and concentration and memory. So there's really no area of our life that isn't touched by sleep. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I can think to times when I haven't slept enough and sometimes for me, I get this feeling of uh, how do I describe it? Like, I feel like almost out, out of worldly, like mm -hmm. it, it fe feels like, um, uh, like in the movies, like when there's like, you're passing through like a portal, there's like a womb, like the whole world feels like it's making that sound. And like, there's a physical sensation to this. Like, I feel lightheaded or like really light and like not fully present from, from that perspective, which of course, like, that's not a good thing, you know, to be driving in or, you know, trying to operate heavy machinery or, yeah. you know, like writing an exam or something when you really, you know, when that sleep hasn't happened very well. And the other thing I, you know, I like to talk with my clients about, you know, like everything's just so much harder, mm -hmm. right? You wake up and like, the slightest thing can set you off mood wise, right? Like, you know, it could be so unimportant. Like you put the spoon in the wrong spot, you know, <laughs> which leads to our social, like it, that's how it then begins to impact our socialization because it makes it so much harder to be social and like engaged with, you know, family, friends, coworkers when like you haven't slept well and then never mind pain. Right. Yeah. That absolutely. can just, it's like a volume and it just starts to crank up pain and it just makes every process so much harder. It really does. I mean, there are so many interesting studies out there. There's one I know that they took individuals who slept well and those who didn't sleep well and they showed them just a range of kind of facial expressions. And the group that didn't sleep well interpreted those facial expressions largely so much more threatening than the group that had slept. Right. So to your point about social interactions, I mean, just there's just no area of our lives that isn't impacted by it. That that's really that is a really interesting study. And and, I, and then you just think about like, you know, if you're a person in pain seeking care, like how you're going to read your, the therapist, how you're going to you know how you're going to take 
advice may seem um, confrontational or, you know, right? Like everything kind of has its, it's kind of, it tints over your ability to kind of weave through, you know, body cues, uh, voice prosody, um, and then, you know, is the environment safe? So yeah, and you can see how that would be difficult for a person to then take our health advice and like apply it when some of it might not even be getting in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. Okay. From your understanding and like from your research, like what, you know, what, be, what can happen if we don't get enough sleep? Like what? Yeah. So the, you know, we do see things like emotion regulation affected, and then we see increased uh, rates of depression, anxiety. Uh, We see more difficulty with impulse control. Um, And that's just kind of more on the uh, emotional level. There's a whole physical aspect of not sleeping, like our immune systems become compromised, um, where we're we're not able to, to fight off illness in the same way or we're driving around basically impaired, you know, beyond the, the legal limit because just because we haven't slept uh, very well. So it can really cause quite a bit of harm and, and um, impact just a lot of different areas of life, both emotionally and physically. And I imagine, you know, uh, again, from, you know, the physiotherapy side of it, like it also is going to slow down that, like that repair, right? Yes. I yes. think I read, and perhaps you can correct me if I'm wrong, that human growth hormone is most released between the hours of like, I can't remember if it's 11 and seven or 10 and seven. So like, if you're going to try to get your maximum sleep to try to get your maximum sleep within those hours to optimize your body's like repairability. Yeah, we think of uh, growth hormone is released during deep sleep. So yes, absolutely. That's also why we see little kids getting so much sleep and so much deep sleep because yeah, growth hormone is released during that time. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what can, what are some things or common things that interfere with sleep? I see a number of different things coming up. One of the the most common is worry, anxiety, stress, things like that, that interfere with our ability to wind down and to sort of uh, relax and let go because sleep is such a passive um, activity. We can't be kind of clenching, holding on to ruminating about, you know, the next day or something that's happened this week. Um, So I, I definitely see a lot of people struggling with anxiety who then struggle to fall asleep at night. I, you know, I also see lifestyle factors interfering with sleep quite a bit these days. So things like not keeping a a standard routine, being up late working or up late on our devices or having kind of variable wake up times in the morning. You know, I wake up at five on the weekends or on the weekdays, but then, you know, eight on the weekends. And so having kind of like a lifestyle um, situation that, that makes it really hard for our bodies to get the sleep that it needs. And then there are medical reasons why things like pain or sleep apnea that do make it difficult either to sleep at all, or to really get that good restorative deep sleep. 
I have a question um, about the worry and the stress and the sort of, you know, the mind doing its thing. And one of the things I guess I'm curious about is, you know, you kind of go through your day to day, you know, you're busy, do to do, you finally get all the things that you needed to get done. And it's like, now you're like, okay, now it's time to shut down. Why is it that it tends to creep up on you that you're going to think and worry at nighttime? Like, is it because we're just so busy and distracted throughout our day that we're like just not processing that information? I have a th- I have I also have like I wonder this is kind of my theoretical um thing which is if we're revving in high like fight or flight like get things done busy 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 and our sympathetic nervous system is let's say in an elevated level because the body wants balance is it that because we're so far on one side that the parasympathetic system just can't catch up or it has to work so hard and for so long to catch up into that homeostasis? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that there's a number of things that, that for different people perhaps, or multiples for, for one person that contribute to that, but you're right. We're going, going, going all day long. It's almost like, I think of it often, like we're, we're kind of holding a beach ball underwater. We can do it. You know, it's, 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 it's possible. It's just effortful. And so all day long, we're sort of going, 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 we're kicking the can down the line on maybe processing or really feeling kind of what effects that's having on us. And then when we lay down at night, we sort of try to relax. Well, that beach ball comes flying up and there are all the things that we've distracted ourselves from, you know, during the day, there they are. They're ready to be worried about right then because they haven't gotten their attention during the day. So, you know, that's, that's, I think, a a big factor for us because we're so busy and we're so apt to kind of push aside any of our more difficult emotions. You know, if I have something happen during the day that's upsetting, it's in that moment, maybe feeling better to just say, I'm just not going to deal with this. But then when I lay down at night and it's finally quiet, guess what's going to be right there for me to think about and deal with? So mm. I think that that's a, a big reason why. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think to myself, you know, be, being busy practitioners and maybe something happens and, you know, a treatment or just like you, you have a challenging experience or maybe you didn't get the outcome that you were hoping to or something, but then you have to go to the next patient. So it's like, okay, I can't think about this. I'll think about this later. And then it's like, not until like I'm laying in bed and then I'm run- then I have the chance and the opportunity to rerun the whole scenario. And then I get myself all stressed out about it. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, you know, and then it's a lot of effort to then try to process through that or say, okay, right now is not the time to think about this. Or I often catch myself trying to solve problems that I don't have. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. You know, I'm worrying about tomorrow. Um, you know, I certainly get better now a days to catch myself when I'm doing that and be like, this is not even happening right now. Yeah. This is just like, you're playing. What ifs we're not going to play. What ifs right now? Like, that's not a thing you will deal with ev- whatever it comes at you when it comes at you. Um, you know, so I'm able to kind of keep that part of the sort of worrying about the future bit 
But sometimes there's the ruminating about the past a little bit that it's like, okay, you've run this through 15 times. Yeah. Probably feeling about it is probably not even the thing that that person felt about it. And like, probably the next time you talk, it'll all work itself out, which it usually does one way or the other. And so sometimes that works other times, not so much, but, but I find it's interesting that, you know, that stuff just seems to creep up when we give ourselves permission to be quiet. Yeah. And that's why I think one of the best things that, that we can do, and I do this with a lot of people, both for anxiety and for insomnia is create that time. So have it during the day. We call it, we actually call it worry time. It's on my calendar. It's on my schedule. And I know, Oh, it's 6 PM for the next 15 minutes, no matter how I'm feeling or how worried I am in that moment, I'm going to sit here and worry on purpose. And then the rest of the day, right afterwards, when I'm laying down at night or the next day, like, Oh no, no, it's not worry time. I've got, I've got that. It's not six o'clock at six. I'll come back to it. But in giving ourselves that space, often we kind of can deal with some of that. And I think there's also some, I'm sure there's some science behind like writing it down and getting it out of your head. Right. And then you can actually look at your sheet and be like, okay, half of the stuff that I'm thinking about is like, you know, not even like, it's just so out there. Right. So then you can kind of start to like cross these things off the list. Like this is not likely, you know, the next alien invasion, you know, right. Like (laughs) I I just throw that out there because, you know, it's 2020. So, you know, who knows? knows, Right. Um, But yeah, like, you know, kind of looking at it and being like, okay, what is the likelihood or, you know, using thought records, right? Like, what is the evidence to support this statement? What is the evidence against the statement? Like, so you can kind of see things a little bit more clearly process through. So hopefully at nighttime, you're not like solving the world's problems. Exactly. And even sometimes writing down something that I can do with this, because sometimes it's like, oh yeah, I just, this needs to go on my to-do list. And then once it's on our to-do list, it's like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to do that. Right. I'm going to call that person. I'm going to make that appointment. And then it's much easier to kind of let go. Um, so I think, yeah, you're exactly right. That having it down on paper, there's so much more we can do with it than when it's, you know, in our mind. I want to kind of switch gears and I want to talk about some common myths about sleep, right? Cause they're, yeah. you know, you got like, you got mainstream media and you got, you know, social media and you got everybody that, you know, wants to share their opinions. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to, you know, what are some things that people will come across, you know, about sleep that may not hold the scientific weight that it does? Yeah, there, there are a couple things that I see come up again and again with people coming in kind of saying that they have this worry about this idea that, you know, or they have a, a way of doing things that just isn't working for them. So I always want to talk about myths. One of them that I see come up all the time is the eight hour myth that we all need eight hours. And if we're not getting eight hours, there's a problem and there's, you know, we've got to deal with that, which of course creates a lot of anxiety around sleep. And then of course what's happening, we're not sleeping because we're anxious. So really eight hours is, is one number that might be someone's right number, but everybody's got their own right number of hours of sleep. For most adults, it's going to be somewhere between 
seven to nine hours, right? With, I would say probably a lot of people doing just fine, getting, you know, seven, seven and a half hours. It doesn't have to be that we're laying there for eight hours unconscious to, to be okay, to be enough. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you say that because, um, I mean, this is coming from a different, uh, book from a different context. Um, but what makes me think about this is that we have a norm value. So I never in economics, I couldn't really understand the whole concept of like standard deviations, you know, and I think about kind of the chart where, you, you know, most people will fall somewhere in a norm value between seven to nine hours, as you said, then you're going to have a 10 to 15% of the population that is before that, you know, maybe they're good on five hours. Okay. And then you're going to have a small group, 10, 15% on the other side who need 10 to 11. And what, what, what this book was saying, and it was talking about in the context of sexuality, um, mm. said that it's all normal. Like, it is normal. You're not abnormal if you're not with the norm, right? It's just understanding, um, you know, where you fit along that spectrum. That's totally normal. Um, and then making adjustments for that, right? Maybe you are a five hour sleeper, but you need that nap in the middle of the day. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe that's the thing that works really well for you. And I think at the end of the day, rather than saying, this is how many hours I, you know, I, I think I need it's what do I actually need? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really asking the question, you know, is how do I know when it's enough, right? Yes. If I feel great during the day, if I'm, you know, uh, not at all seeing any impact from getting six and a half hours, then, you know, that might be, I might be one of the rare few that doesn't need the seven to nine hours. Um, or, you know, maybe it's, I feel pretty, pretty darn awful until I get to the, you know, nine and a half hours. And maybe I'm one of the rare few that needs, you know, more than, than seven to nine hours. We do think that most people do need that, that seven to nine hours, but yeah, it's okay. What do I know about, you know, what my life looks like during the day, how I feel during the day. And if I'm, you know, a seven hour person and I'm laying there for nine hours, you know, tr and only sleeping for seven of them, but miserable because I'm awake for two hours in bed. Well, that's actually not working for me. That's not the best way to do it. So I, you know, I think that that's where working with somebody that, that knows a lot about sleep and can kind of walk you through, how can I tell whether or not this is my right number? Cause sometimes it can be hard to tell is great because then once you know, like I'm more in this group, then you, you can kind of work towards protecting that amount of time for you to be able to get what you're, you're needing specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And it's going to be like, I think it's the, the, it's variable, right? There is variation. Um, and then it's kind of working through with somebody like you to, to take a look at the whole picture of the person, because you may not feel necessarily too tired and you're like, yeah, I can function off of five hours, but then there's other signs and exactly. symptoms showing up. So it's never quite clear. Mm -hmm. And to, to be too generalizing to everybody. Well, then like you said, it becomes a source of its own 
stress and anxiety. So it's kind of like working with the person to find out what is the best thing for you and how can I help you get there? So, so common myth, number one, the seven, the eight hour rule Mm -hmm. kind of, Mm -hmm. kind of busted there. Any other common myths that come? Yeah. So one of the ones that I hear a lot is that if I'm not sleeping, if I'm not asleep, then it's better to just go ahead and lay here and rest. So I'm going to stay in bed. I'm going to wait for sleep to come and I'm just going to rest. And, and actually for someone who's struggling to sleep, it isn't great to be laying there awake in bed because we are then pairing the bed with wakefulness. And our mind has a tendency to make associations and connections, just like Pavlov's dog, right? Ring the bell and you salivate, right? You get into bed and now you're wide awake because you're spending all that time awake trying to sleep in bed. So even if it means that you're not getting that rest, sometimes if you're struggling with sleep, it's better to go ahead and just get out of bed and go somewhere else and do something just relaxing, read or, or, you know, look through a magazine or some people do puzzles, but do something out of the bed. And then when you feel tired enough, lay and back down. So that's another one that sort of lay here and rest myth. I see a lot. Yeah. Any other ones that come to mind? I mean, I think that, you know, the, the other one that I hear a lot is that if you're a good sleeper, then you don't wake up through the night. And that is not the case. So even the best sleepers, though they may not remember it, they might swear up and down that they haven't woken up at all through the night. They have. They they really have. They just don't remember they rolled over and fell right back to sleep. But it's actually quite normal and healthy to have a couple awakenings during the night. Now, we want you to fall back asleep fairly quickly, but it's not the case at all that there's something wrong with you if you do wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good, I think that's a good point because sometimes people will say to me, I'll be like, how's sleep? And they're like, well, I wake up multiple times. I mean, I fall back asleep, but I wake up multiple times. Um, and then I'm like, huh, right. Even myself. Well, Mm -hmm. that's doesn't sound like it's good, but I guess what you're saying is the idea is, is like, if you wake up to roll over, you should be back to sleep. Right. Versus like you wake up and then it's taking you half an hour to fall back asleep. That might be like, okay, something is up there. Right. Or if it's happening, you know, 10, 12 times during the night, then yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I think it's, it's really, um, it actually creates more problem to worry about that sort of wake up if you're waking up a couple times a night. But Mm -hmm. yes, we do really want you to you know, if you wake up, then it takes you a couple minutes perhaps to fall back asleep, but that you're not up for a couple hours in the middle of the night or early in the morning. Let's talk about, are there any other myths that we haven't covered that I? Those are some of the biggest okay. ones. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Okay. How, how does insomnia kind of develop? Like, how do you, like, how do you just stop being able to sleep? That's a good question. And of course, it it really is individual, but there's a model that I like to use to think about how it might develop broadly for individuals. It's called the three P model. The first P is is predisposing factor. So we we might have something that we're just born with, a, a biological predisposition to developing it. Maybe we've got excellent um, you know, hearing. And so 
that sound in the middle of the night is going to wake us up more likely, right? Um, but it's a predisposing factor. And as long as that there, that's all it is, it's really not going to impact us very much. That second P, though, is precipitating factors. And that's kind of what's the starting point of the insomnia. It could be a big project at work or construction that's happening, you know, outside your window early, early in the morning. Or it might even be something like having a baby and then you have a an infant that's waking you up in the middle of the night. So it's something that starts the, the insomnia cycle. And then that third and final P is the perpetuating factors. So those are the things that we really wanna work with because whatever that precipitating event was, it's happened, right? And there's usually not much more we can do about it. By the time people come see me, they have dealt with that as far as they can deal with it, if they even know really what it was, because often we don't, we don't know, we don't have a clue. But those perpetuating factors are the things that keep the insomnia cycle moving and going, right? So those are the things we really can do a lot about so that, you know, whatever that precipitating event was and those predisposing factors were, you know, we can actually sleep fine even when those things pop up. It might be that we have a project, we don't sleep for a couple weeks, and then we go back to sleeping just fine until the perpetuating factors kick in. So that's what we really, really work with in these behavioral treatments for insomnia. Okay, that makes total sense. Let's, um, so you said kind of behavioral approach, which is like a perfect segue to talk about like, what is different about a behavioral approach to insomnia versus kind of like the typical approach. And maybe you can speak to what the most common approaches are to insomnia and how like your, your, I guess the way that you address it is different. Yeah. So the, you know, historically it was really medication that, that, people were using to, to treat insomnia. It was either, you know, we'll take something, a sleeping pill or, or something like that, that will um, work for a time perhaps, but that as soon as we stop taking it, or even before we stop taking it, is really, it's only treating the symptoms. And so it's not getting to that underlying cause. Or we've got something like long-term treatments for depression or anxiety, where it takes a while of being in treatment. And that those might work, but they don't necessarily work quickly. And it's not necessarily that we were treating sleep directly in those cases. We were just kind of treating what was some of the, the interfering factors. Now we have these treatments, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia being probably the most common one, um, that are now recommended as the number one treatment for insomnia by all the major health organizations, which is amazing but it's totally different because we are focused on what's keeping the insomnia cycle going um, so that we really are kind of addressing the insomnia directly and quickly, which is awesome, I think. Well, you know, from a risk versus benefits perspective, right? Um, I think, you know, a CBT, approach, you know, it doesn't have the same types of side effects, like a medication, perhaps, right? Like medications have side effects that could lead to other medical, you know, conditions and things, uh, you know, uh, other health related concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's certainly addiction possibilities with some of the sleep 
sleep aids as well, right? Um, whereas, you know, with something like CBT, I imagine that the risks centered around that are, I'm sure there's, there's as with anything in life, there's always a risk of something kind of going sideways, but probably yeah. not like, probably not life threatening. Right. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're, we're hopefully, you know, sort of addressing this in a way that, um, are longer lasting than any of our other options and that have lower risks, um, than our other options. Yeah. So what does a, so can we talk a little bit about what a behavioral approach to insomnia looks like? Like what, what, you know, somebody comes in and says, okay, I have insomnia. Like what are some things that you might do? Yeah, that's a great question. So the cognitive behavioral approach to insomnia, it, it, it is what it sounds like, right? So we're kind of looking at behavioral patterns and thought patterns that are interfering with sleep or perpetuating the insomnia cycle. So um, it's individual for everyone. So when somebody comes in, I'm looking at, oh, are you struggling to fall asleep? Or are you waking up a lot? What's happening? And what's your lifestyle like? But, you know, the behavioral kind of component of this might look like really taking um, a look at the circadian rhythm and our sleep propensity to, to learn what um, our body and mind wants to do, right? What time of day is best for me to fall asleep or, or to wake up and kind of lining those two things up so that they're, they're working together and they're working to, to our advantage, even if that means that I don't sleep tonight. I want to make sure if I don't sleep tonight that the following night, my body gets to capitalize on, you know, that sleepiness that I've built up from not having a good sleep tonight, right? So it's kind of taking, uh, you know, our schedules and making sure that we're, we're able to um, fit it in with what's going to be best for us. It's having a strict schedule. So waking up at the same time every day is really, really huge. Um, and then it's thinking about what are these patterns, like the association I was talking about earlier, if I'm not sleeping at night, am I laying awake in bed and worrying and now associating worry with my bed? So then we kind of say, okay, let's get you out of bed during these times, or let's have you do this instead. And then it even might take a look at things like what I'm doing during the day, how much light exposure am I getting during the day? So it's really focused on what am I doing? Mm -hmm. um, and trying to find these places that what I'm doing might actually be hurting my sleep. And then on the cognitive side, we're looking at the thought patterns that are, are undermining our, our sleep, our worries, our, are the myths that we might have about how, you know, sleep is impacting my, my day, my life, um, or what's the best way for me to get sleep, right? Sometimes it's just we find not true, right? I have an idea about what's going to be best for me. We really actually test that out. We run the experiment um, and see, does it work? Often it doesn't. Often it backfires and hurts our sleep in the long run. So we're looking at what our belief system is doing, whether or not it's helping or, or not. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Um, so should, okay, so should people be checking the time? Oh, that's a good question. When they're laying in bed and not sleeping? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm a big proponent of as much as possible, don't look at the clock, don't know what time it is, because there is no possible way to see what time it is and not do math, 
not possible, right? As soon as I see that it's 3 a.m., I'm going to go 3 a.m. and 7 a.m. minus And then I fell asleep at 11 plus. That means I'm going to get four and a half. I'm doing a whole math problem in the middle of the night, not conducive to sleep. So having a clock or checking the clock is probably not the greatest thing. Yeah. I, I certainly, you know, try, especially on nights that I'm not sleeping well, I try purposefully not to check the time because I know it's just going to aggravate me. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know if I get aggravated, I'm going to not sleep with whatever remaining time is left. So I figure just, okay, I'm awake. I'm going to fall back asleep. And if that means I got 20 minutes of whatever's left, then okay. But I mm -hmm. won't know because I didn't, you know, I didn't check the time. Exactly. Um, so I know, you know, sometimes there's like tips, like you should like read and like dim down the lights and like do all those things. Like, should you be doing those things in bed or should that be done in a completely separate, like not even in the bedroom? Like, cause you said the brain makes these associations and um, the thing is that they're not rational mm -hmm. things like, right. Like if I thought about it and said, uh, worry and the bed, like I, we wouldn't cognitive, like we wouldn't do that, but the way that our brain encodes that is very irrational. Mm -hmm. So, you know, really what are the thing? you know, what are the things people should be associating with their bed? It's basically sleep, right? We actually say to people, the only two things I want you to do in bed are sleep or sex. That's it. Right. And so it's, you're, you're exactly right. Reading in bed, watching TV in bed, checking our phone in bed, all of these things, we have really made kind of a, a normative part of our, our culture. And it's problematic because we, we really want to have the space itself be its own cue to our mind that this is the time to fall asleep. And we do find that while that takes time, so... You know, if I'm really eliminating all of these extracurriculars that I'm doing in bed, then it might take a couple of weeks for me to see the benefit of that, but it's there, it's going to happen. And that's going to be a benefit to me, even if at first it feels weird and maybe makes it harder for a couple nights as my body kind of tries to figure out what the heck's going on. So kind of what we just to sort of summarize what we've we've sort of talked about is like, so for example, like looking at what are the kinds of thought processes that we're having and the beliefs we have around sleep, uh, removing like distractions and thing that not doing things in the bed, uh, not checking the time. And you said also waking up at the same time. And if you're waking up, okay. If somebody wakes up in bed and maybe like, okay, I'm going to put on some music and try to fall asleep. What's a good amount of time to dedicate to see if you're going to fall back asleep before it's like, you should really get out of bed until that tiredness piece comes back. Like what's, what's a good amount of time to try to fall asleep before you're, they should get out of bed. Yeah. I usually tell people somewhere around the 15 minute mark. But what I, I, I say, you know, is that if you wake up and within two minutes, you're, you're thinking, oh my gosh, here we go again. It's going to be one of those nights. This is terrible. Or you go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that to so-and-so yesterday. They're going to be so mad at me. And, and if your mind is immediately there, go ahead and get up. Mm. So don't even wait, right? So you might take a couple breaths. If your mind is really just 
there in that anxiety, that worry, go ahead and get up. Don't even wait the 15 minutes. But yeah, I say get up after about 15 minutes. If you're laying there and relaxed and enjoying kind of the, the comfort of the bed after 15 minutes, just have a little spot that you can go to have it be a dim, you know, lighted space where you can read or do a puzzle or something like that, preferably outside of the bedroom entirely, but certainly outside of the bed. And then give yourself a little bit to get sleepy again. When your eyelids start to droop and you start to feel that heaviness, then go back and try again and see if you can fall asleep. Again, you might give yourself another 15 minutes and get back up, but at least you're not laying there in bed miserable, worrying, thinking about, you know, how much time you have left and how mm-hmm. terrible tomorrow is going to be because you're going to be so tired. So let's say somebody's kind of putting these pieces together. I mean, you said it's going to take a couple of weeks for unpairing the, you know, the, the activity with the bed. Right. Um, but generally speaking, like on average, and I understand, obviously it's always individual and it's going to be different for every, uh, every person, you know, how long does it kind of take typically to kind of, see improvements in the sleeping? I would say if you're working with a, with a sleep specialist, a behavioral sleep specialist, then, you know, for, for me, I usually see people making improvements, maybe even as early as three weeks in, three appointments in. And, and the reason is, is because while you may not be sleeping the amount that you want to sleep right away, because we build up, we work from sort of quality first, and then we build up to quantity of, of getting enough sleep in, throughout the treatment, you pretty quickly will start to say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how quickly I'm falling asleep now, even if I'm not getting enough sleep yet. Or you might say, wow, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm not as miserable, you know, as I approach the night thinking, oh gosh, it's going to be a terrible night of sleep and, and things like that. So we see changes actually pretty early on with the treatment, the full duration of the treatment. Um, actually, I would say on average is around eight weeks, eight to 10 weeks. Okay. Yeah. Just, you know, to give people kind of, uh, you know, uh, an idea. Now, some of the approach, well, the things that we've discussed, they're, they're fairly straightforward, mm-hmm. but they're not easy. Yes. What are some tips or tricks that you may use to help people stay motivated and adherent to the process? Because you got to stick, you you know, you got to go through the process. And, you know, I always say like healing is painful, Mm -hmm. right? There is a discomfort associated with the healing process. You, you know, if you cut yourself, you know, there's stitches or there's, you know, you have to wait for the scab and like, there's some discomfort associated with that. I, same thing I imagine with rewriting your sleep patterns. There's You're going to be uncomfortable for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are some things you, you know, you give for people to like, what what can people hang on to <laughs> or yeah. use to stay, stay on track? Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, this is, um, it is a little bit like, you know, physical therapy where there can be some discomfort, but really I, I tell people, what we're doing is going to long-term be so beneficial and kind of working with them on hanging on to the, the long-term. Yes, in the short-term, it's, it's tough. But we're not just doing this as a, 
while you're doing it, it feels better medication, symptom reliever. We're actually getting underneath this to the cause of, of, of why this is happening. And then I have people who come back or reach out to me years later and say like, I'm doing great. I'm, I'm still sleeping. So I tell people those kinds of things so that they know this is a long-term game here that I am, I am doing this for me three months from now. I'm doing this for me three years from now because she deserves all of this hard work. So, you know, I, I, I really try to, to tell people, you know, what that's going to look like and walk them through that. I also would say, you know, to anyone who's curious about, about this whole process is, it can be so helpful to work with somebody versus trying to do this on your own, because then you do have them to remind you of that and to say, okay, I'm noticing this individual, you know, little thing for you here. And then they can address it more quickly than if you're doing kind of um, a manualized treatment, like uh, walking yourself through a workbook. Those are great. But I would say if you're really struggling, work with a person who's there with you, who's your coach, who's your partner as you're walking through all of this um because it's it's yeah i mean it, it can be a, a tough process especially early on in the first couple of weeks it can be it can be pretty tough and then the other thing i always tell people is that when they go and they try something and they come back to me the next week and they show me their their sleep chart cuz they track their sleep and they say it was terrible it's so easy to 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 look at that and say Yes, but now we know this, right? We learned something from this. Even though it was terrible, even though it didn't feel good, we now know how you respond to these sorts of things. And we can we can never unknow that information. Nobody can take that from us, that this impacts you in this way is gonna be useful to you forever and ever. So even when it's hard, it's still beneficial in other words. Yeah, it's still a, a learning experience because you can now with certainty kind of cross that off the list or, you know, make adjustments to that. And I mean, you know, healing is a journey, right? Yes. Um, I mean, if we all had it a hundred percent, right, then the world would be a very different place, but, you know, and, and I think that's the important pieces, you know, when you're working with somebody, you have somebody to reflect back to you so that yes. you can find the answers for yourself, right? Like we, yes, we have knowledge and we have tips and tricks and techniques and, you know, what we can offer suggestions. But at the end of the day, the person who's living the experience is the expert. Yes, exactly. Right. And we're here trying to, you know, help you find and navigate through this journey. Right. So for sure, we end up being a team, right? So I've got a certain kind of knowledge you know, my, my clients have a certain kind of knowledge and together we're able to sort of build up a program that's really individualized to their needs. And, and I think that it's, I usually say like, give us another week, let's just focus on this next week. And pretty quickly people see that benefit and then are, are pretty sold on like, okay, it's hard right now, but I'm ready. It's like going to the gym, lifting heavy weights. It's hard right now, but then I have the muscle that's built at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any um, like resources, like, you know, books or apps or anything that you often find yourself like using and or recommending? 
Yeah. So, so if you're curious in general about sleep, there's a book uh, that, that actually is, is fairly new still um, by Matt Walker called Why We Sleep. And it's just a very broad overview. It's fascinating. It's actually gotten a lot of media attention as well. So, so a lot of people may have already heard it or, or read about it um, or read it itself, but the, the whole book is just, you know, all the components of sleep, how it affects our life, some of the really interesting research that's out there about sleep, and even some of the, the you know, introductions to CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And then if there's, you know, there's a workbook that's called End the Insomnia Struggle that's really good. And if someone can't, you know, go in to work with somebody directly, it's a great place to start for doing it on their own, walking themselves through the different components of, of uh, the sleep treatment. And then I, I do know of an app that I've heard good things about called Sleepio. It really is kind of an app version of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Now, it's not necessarily as individualized as working with a, a person who's a specialist, but um, it is, I, I, like I said, I've heard really good things about how it lets you input your, your sleep and kind of gives you directions um, based on what your sleep was like. So that's a, a good app to take a look at as well. At least a good starting point, For you sure. know, and, and, you know, and, and then if, if, if you're stuck, you know, you're gathering information that you're going to then take to a professional that's going to go, okay, so I'm not going to obviously recommend this, 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 and this, because you've already tried it. And we already figured out that that doesn't work for you. So let's, you know, try this, this, and this, um, yes. that, you know, maybe wasn't in a book or maybe person hadn't considered. And so that's where that collaborative piece can be really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's tough right now because we don't have enough of these behavioral sleep specialists. We need more of them. Um, unfortunately, they're just, they're few and far between. But I would also say if somebody's looking to see if they, if there's anybody in their area that does it, um, the Society for Behavioral Sleep Medicine has a find a provider option on their website. So that's a great place to look too, if you're just looking for a, a person that you can work with on your sleep. Do you know, uh, so I, I guess this is, this is going to be a question because, you know, we have Canadian and U.S. listeners, obviously you're in the U.S., we're up here in uh, north of the wall. Um, do you know if there are, like, can people, can Canadian, are there Canadians that take this? Is this like a, a U.S. training only, or is this like an international training that people can take? It's international and it, it has, you know, grown in, in popularity and interest among providers. So, yeah, I think that, you know, that's a, a place to start um, that that website. But yeah, even just Googling cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in your area might, you know, you might, might find something. somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Good call. Um, if people do want to find you, follow you, check out your stuff, where can where, and obviously, I'm assuming you're licensed in North Carolina, so you're only able to see people who actually reside within that state. Yes, that's true. I, there is a new initiative, um, newer initiative in the states that's um, going to have sort of a uh, the option to become a part of a program where you can work with individuals from some other states if those states are also a part of it, which I'll be doing. So in the coming years that there'll be a little bit more flexibility, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but in terms of currently 
that's, that is the case right now that I can work with individuals in North Carolina. Um, and that in terms of following me, so I'm on Instagram and post some sleep stuff, some kind of general psych um, resources. And that's Raleigh Psychwell is my handle. Okay. We will put that in the show notes for the awesome. correct spelling and ease of access. So you just, you know, take a look at the podcast description. Podcast descriptions can be also accessed at ecophysio.com under the podcast tab or even the blog post tab. If you open up the episode, the description and all the contact detail will be there. Just FYI. Great. Yeah. And, and then my website is, it's got all my contact information on it, which is ClarityPsychologyNC.com. Excellent. Perfect. And again, we'll put that in the show notes for making it easy for you guys to access. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and chat on this like really important topic and like just giving me, you know, it's just a nice resource that I can also point clients to and be like, here, listen to this. She's got some resources at the end that may be helpful, you know, then, you know, from there, maybe finding somebody. So I think this is just going to be really helpful for me as a practitioner to offer a little bit of information to somebody who may need that help. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that, that it can be useful and helpful. It's such an important topic, just like you said. Yes. And on that note, I also want to take a moment to thank our listeners for joining us on the show. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. You know, if you know a family member struggling with sleep, please share them, share this with them. You know, it may not be insomnia, but, you know, other aspects of sleep disturbances that like maybe they'll pick up a nice tip or two that you never know could completely change somebody's life. So share it out. Let us know what you think, like, comment, you know, leave us reviews, all that kind of fun stuff. And I say goodbye for now until the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.